coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We sell your private internet browsing history to the highest bidder. Wait, no, that's your ISPs. We cover the latest rollbacks of U.S. internet privacy regulations. Plus, the surprisingly uplifting story of script kitties getting their day in court. And Dan does a not-so-deep dive this time into ZFS and lets us all know why we should already be using it. Plus, it's your feedback, a ridiculous roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on March 28, 2017, and is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week, hey, and every week, he's our favorite host. He's the admin, the explainer, and the organizer. It's Dan. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Hello, everybody. Here yeah. we are. How's it going? It's going wonderfully. How are you this week? Good. Anything new to share with us? Yes. Oh, you know how you, you know, that really, that always makes me happy. New cargo pants. New cargo pants. So are you going to like get up and uh, spin for us? Let us see everything? D- Duluth Trading Firehose Pants. That sounds very practical. They are very good. My last pair wear lasted about nearly three years. Oh, wow. Hey, now, that's, uh, and, that's pretty and, good. And that's probably wearing 100, 200 times a year. That's awesome. So is that so, kind of part of a part of your uniform, if you will? Uh, yeah, it basically has enough pockets to carry everything I need every day, like uh, wallet, cell phone, glasses, uh, spare battery. Um, mm, yeah, the everyday carry. It's nice like to have. That. It's nice yeah. to have storage if you don't have yeah. a bag or whatever. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, we previously talked about me migrating off my Nagios into external and internal. Right. Yeah, that was a big big split up. I asked uh, Mark uh, Felder the other day um, to give me Mark Felder or Mark Fel. Oh, it's so terrible! I keep forget. I keep mixing up surnames and IRC handles. Yeah, that can be pretty confusing when they're not the same. Mark gave me a jail on one of his boxes, and I was able to implement my separate Nagios panel for public-facing services. Um, when I say public versus private services, does, does is that intuitive? I mean, do you just mean like if they are facing, they have like publicly addressable IPs? Uh, is it for like services that you can query over the public internet versus things that you access only internally? Yeah, that's okay. it. So it's stuff that I can monitor from third-party systems. Right. So the system I'm monitoring from is part, not part of my infrastructure, so... I want to be able to see what the public sees. Yes, exactly. So I'm monitoring what the public sees, but not necessarily what the public uses. Mm. Because some of it's private mail servers and stuff like that, but it still can be seen right. on the public internet. Right. And so anything that requires SN, MPD, or NRPE will be internal. Yeah, that would make sense. We'll, we'll, we'll be at home and we'll... But things that are Will already be. trusted or already exposed to the internet, that's sort of, external. Yeah. 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 So like, it, it'll check that uh, that port eighty is up and running, 
but the internal stuff will verify that it's Nagios, sorry, Nginx is running or Apache that's running. It'll okay. it'll check to make sure that the, the the PID number in the file matches the process. <laughs> yeah, that that PID is actually running. All of that good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yes, <laughs> I had to reboot so. a Nagios instance earlier today. That web UI said it was running and everything looked good, but nope, nope, no PID file, but no PID. So that can definitely be a concern. I had a lot of trouble getting it working at one point because, you know, when you don't set up the CGI right, it tries to download the script. Yes. It kept like you didn't execute script, that. You did not execute script, that. Downloading the script, uh. downloading the script, downloading the script. What? It's set up right. Uh, check again. Yeah, set up. Look for somebody else's website. How did they do it? Oh, yeah, set up that way. Download the script. Download the script. Let's try another browser. Oh, look, Nagius is running. Thank you very much, Carl. Uh, what are you using uh, for the CGI layer with Nginx? Uh, I'm running it off Apache. Oh, okay. Got it. So for um, Mark also suggests that I start using Nginx and P- P- PFM. Hmm. P- what FPM? Yeah, that I does sound familiar. Remember. I've used another one like FCGI wrap or something. I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. Not something I've done um, extensively. I usually end up so deploying Python things or other, but. It would be something I'd like to do, but well. I mean, uh, if Apache's working and what's your load really like, so. Yeah, it's not much. It's not extreme. Even, you know, we're talking about a Nagis web server that's behind HTTPS and uh, author, auth, so nobody can see it unless they authorize right. first. So the only person that loads it is me. <laughs> there you go. So it, it loads every what? Apache works great. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, well, that... And, uh, and, it's, and it's just easy to set up. Yes, exactly. And there's a lot of benefit there. Mm. Well, that's pretty neat. Um, I look forward to hearing more about oh, how you use oh, it. Oh, one more thing. Yeah. As we speak now, no hands involved, the FreeBSD, web, FreeBSD Diary website, or more correctly, the server that it runs on, is moving from, I think, New York State to New Jersey. Oh, hey. <laughs> Why, what, what for? New Colo? Better um, hosting? Uh, it's long been hosted by New York Internet. Okay. And they're moving it from an old site to a new site. Nice. And originally, I thought I was going to have to renumber all the IP addresses, but they found a way that I didn't have to do that. Excellent. So That's a lot easier. All I'm doing is... Is it just some downtime while they move it? They yeah. That's easy. Yeah. Okay, so that's the last new thing. No, I like it. Thank you very much for the updates. I'll... Um... Well, uh, I don't use a lot of Nagios myself at work. I definitely do, so I'll be curious to see how this, uh, how your Nagios setup goes in the future. Uh, we can talk about Nagios later on. There we go. Let's talk if you want. Excellent. We can get into that. Huh. Uh, but first, we have much more depression. We have a good show, an excellent show. We talk about your privacy. We talk about ZFS, everyone's favorites. Your feedback and awesome. The roundup looks great. But first, first. Some depressing, breaking news. Lay it on, everyone, Dan. Yep. This is depressing. Um, Now, what bothers me about this is, unfortunately, a lot of what we're going to talk about in this section of the show is U.S.-centric. But I'm sure everyone can relate. So, earlier this week, uh, 
the Senate passed a bill that sort of let ISPs sell your private stuff. And that's a big pain in the ass. So I was thinking, well, no, this won't get past the House. Um, and I was hoping it wouldn't get past the House, but it did. It got past the House today. But it was earlier this week, and my notes aren't showing, that a private internet access, private internet access, a VPN provider, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times. How much does that cost, you know? That's a no, I don't, but it's a, that's a load of money. Yeah, that's a spendy thing. Yeah. And they called out the 50 senators who passed this law. I like so that. So I was, I thought that was pretty poopy, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yes, I like that. Uh, I like that a lot. I don't use them, but I have, uh, I definitely know some people who do use them. They seem like a fairly reputable VPN company. So it's nice to see that they, I mean, clearly it's in their business interest to do this, but it does speak that, that you know, they care about this issue too. Yep. Yep. I agree. Now, so the next thing that happened is I got this story already earlier today, knowing that the vote was happening and I was going to encourage people to uh, contact their, their, their representatives mm-hmm. and tell them, no, don't do this, don't do this, this is ridiculous. But now I just read that the House just voted to wipe out all of that. So basically overwhelming margin, 215 to 10 sorry, 215 to 205, which isn't, that's only 10 people. You only had to change the minds of five people to prevent this. So I'll be interested to see the list of who voted what on this. Yes, definitely. Now, sticking with that of who voted what, there is a link in the show notes showing you who voted what on that bill. And there were 50 yeas and 48 nays, and two did not vote. And the two that did not vote were from Georgia and Kentucky. Now, what you can do is use this page to scroll down, and you can see the states, and you can see your representative there. And if you're really worried about it, there's another page, the next page. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, where was it? Uh, who represents me? Did I include that in the web page? Yes, you did. Here we are. Who represents you? Yeah, thank you. So go in there, fill in your zip code, your address or whatever, and it'll tell you who represents you. There we go. That's easy peasy. Click on there. Can you get phone numbers? Let's look. Okay, let's see, Patty Murray. Let's find out more about you. Yep, phone number, website, uh, and address if you want to send me. Call that phone number. Forget the email. Call that number. Tell them that what just got passed was incredibly stupid, invasive, and is going to cause all kinds of problems for people in the very near future. Basically, people get pissed off now when they check for an ad on something and then that ad falls falls around for weeks. Now imagine if your ISP has that information. They know exactly what websites you've been to, exactly for how long and what you've been looking at. Um they are now able to sell that information. There's a bunch of um, uh, discussion about you know opt-in and opt-out, but let's be honest. The ISPs are in this for the money. Um, they're seeing the money that Google makes and that, that from advertising, and they think they can do the same thing. 
but they're mistaken because people freely give this information to Google in exchange for benefits that they get from the tools that Google provides. That's a great point, right? Like you understand that that's part of the deal is you yeah. help fuel their their you know advertising network mm-hmm. and you get yep. you're already in a contractual agreement paying a monthly bill most likely to these ISP things. So yep. Yikes. And so so now they want to use information data that you're provide that you're not actually providing but they just happen to be able to see. And what are you going to get out of it? Yeah, nothing. right. Nothing. Nothing. I mean I guess they would say maybe you would get uh, like what AT&T was doing, right? Like say that you'll get better targeted ads or, or those kinds of things more relevant to your interests, which, yeah, maybe that's true. But at what cost? And if I don't have the – if I'm not allowed to, you know, agree or give my consent or anything. Mm-hmm. Where, where do I say that the ad's relevant to yeah, how do I? Yeah, how do I get to inform you? Yes, Can I give I'm you not- feedback uh, on your pull yes. request on your algorithm for scraping yeah. my data? Uh, that's really too bad. So there's another post here about five ways that cyber um, security will suffer because of the, this. It says if Congress repeals the FCC privacy rules, well, they, they have. And it will become law once the president signs it. Don't know when it goes into effect, but you see, the ISPs and the advertising consortiums are in this together they are actively they have been actively lobbying the the uh, the legislators to do this and in fact i was reading earlier today that the um the politician who actually introduced this bill received a lot of funding from isps no conflict of interest there whatsoever no not at all none none yeah, so, it seems like a very a very strange case from that perspective. Um, it, it really just kind of seems anti-consumer in, in, in many ways, anti-privacy. Yes, I can see the business case for that, but there's already been, you know, ISPs that have done something like, hey, you get cheaper internet if you agree to give us this information or other things. So clearly there are ways for the market to deal with this without this kind of change. Now, AT&T tried this. Uh, I read that today too. AT and T tried this. They say we will give you a uh, a non intrusive, ad free browsing experience if you pay an extra twenty three a month, and it died. No one right is incredibly objectionable. So it's just it's just absolutely ridiculous. When you pass a law, at least you've got to keep. In mind, who does it benefit? Yeah, right, exactly. This does not benefit your constituents at all. It benefits businesses in your constituencies. And we know which constituencies we're talking about here. Yeah, it's really hard to see this as a way that's uh, good for society at large in really any way. I can't imagine anyone who is not involved with an ISP or advertising that thinks this is a good move. Yeah. If the poli- if if the ISPs are allowed to sell this data, all of us should be able to buy the browsing data of the politicians that signed this, that voted for this. Now that's all an of- idea I like. Can we uh, can we spin up some sort of uh, advertising company here and start getting that uh, data? 
there, there will be a, a writer in here that it's not valid for a politician. Uh, yes, of course. They'll be exempt. Much Isn't like they that are just how it usually them. works? Yes. Why are we not getting health care like they get? An excellent question. So, risk number one that this article talks about is snooping on traffic. Now, let me move this over here so I'm looking more into the camera. This is a little bit better. So, in order for internet providers to make money off your browsing history, they first have to collect that information. What you're browsing, metadata from who, stuff like that. But they haven't been exactly bastions of security when it comes to keeping that data private. So there's going to be break-ins. This information is going to be stolen. We already know the data that's collected gets stolen. It happened. We, we talk about that, that here all the time. Remember the fuzzy little warm animals? Oh, yeah, my favorite little cloud pet. Nothing ever yeah. happened bad with that. No. Millions of people's... The information from millions of people was stolen there. Now, if ISPs are going to collecting this, they're going to say, "No, we're going to we're, we're going to be very good. And we're going to be very secure." No, nope, no, nope, you have nothing to worry about. That's absolute bullshit. If you collect this data, it will get stolen. It won't and, be stolen from all of them, but it right. will get stolen. And that just underscores too, like it's just having it sitting there, having it available not necessarily making it in the ISP's direct business interest, especially when you already have to subscribe to them for internet in the first place to keep it safe. Uh, you know, and then it really just has it ripe for abuse. It's just waiting to be taken advantage of. If I was being forced to vote on this and being forced to let it pass through, I would ensure that there's heavy fines on a per person basis for any information that was released. You heard it here first. Vote Dan for if, Senate. If your database gets hacked and people, private information is released, private identifiable information, then the company in question is subject to huge fines multiplied by the number of people whose personal information has been released. So say, let's call it $40,000 an incident. 100 people get Exposed? What's that? Is that four million or forty million? I can't do the math. Forty thousand times four hundred thousand. Yeah, that's four million. There we go. So, um, who who was it? Was it Bruce Schneider that said uh, basically the it, it's it, it's in banks' financial interest to make sure that funds don't disappear, but it's not in their financial interest to make sure that your privacy is protected. So they put a lot of mo- right. lot of work into making sure that the money doesn't go missing, but they don't care about your personal data. And it's really important I- to understand those kinds of relationships, right? Because that's really that's really what governs them as an organization. And same here with ISPs. Time and money and security gets spent on the things that are important to the people spending the money, and it's not important to an ISP to maintain your privacy. Not at all. There's no incentive for them to do that. Their incentive is to gather as much information as they can because they're going to be selling that on to other people. And, yeah, they're going to be collecting information about what medicines you're looking at, what... I mean, really, any way that they can make additional revenue without having to, you know, build more lines, lay more fiber, or increase their costs. Now, to that end, 
why am I why does it cost me about ninety dollars a month for a seventy five meg up downline from Verizon plus HDTV when I hear about people that are getting two meg lines of fiber to their apartment in Paris? Yeah. Really makes us feel backwards, doesn't it? Seventy five meg versus sorry versus a two gig line. I'm jealous of that. I think it was a two gig line. Maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe it was a two meg line. I may be wrong. Okay, well that would be a whole different story. Yeah, that that would be not good. Two meg line. Yeah, sorry. You have to report back maybe next week. I'm we can gonna, do text yeah, snap from France. It was one of my coworkers, so I'll have to check with him. Excellent. All right, but so anyway. is there anything else good here in those five ways? Um Erasing encryption and making it easier for for hackers to spy on you. Right now, they can only right now they can only spy on that portion of the encryption, that portion of your traffic that is not encrypted. So if if you're going to HTTPS sites all the time, they can see which site you're going to, but they can't see which URL you're looking at or what you've downloaded, anything like that. So it is highly incentivizing for them to break HTTPS because they don't want you to use HTTPS because that doesn't give them the metadata that you want. So they're going to be highly motivated to break encryption. How many times have we seen politicians saying end-to-end encryption is not good? Yeah, don't do right. it. Don't do it. Yeah, it's just not tenable in their eyes. So the the next logical step, and I agree with this, is they're not going to get much money if you're using VPN or Tor or HTTPS. They want you to use none of those. So I wouldn't be surprised if they start encouraging that. Yeah. And we might see similar things, right, where, you know, if you do more, you know, hey, you're uh, unencrypted traffic to video sites. Yep, well, you will, uh, you don't pay for that or it doesn't count against your data bill. So there's a lot of techniques there that can incentivize them the wrong way. Have you ever typed a... URL into your browser and it's wound up that you've got the domain name wrong. Yes. And so it's a non-existent domain and it brings back a page from your oh, ISP. I hate that. Says, hey, yes. listen, that doesn't exist, but all of these other things Here's do. Here's some search results and some ads that, uh, hey, yeah. give us money. Yeah. Just click there. No, don't do that. Yeah, no, I... I don't do that. That's uh, particularly egregious and... Uh, common first subject oh yeah you should probably change your dns servers so this leads to number three inserting ads into your browsing why wouldn't they they're in the ad business now they're your isp they can manipulate everything coming down from you so that'll be the next thing the isps will say hey listen because we're doing all these ad things can we just you know like insert an ad into the web page you're looking at and the house will, well, the politicians will say, oh, yeah, sure, there's nothing wrong with that. Who are they getting their technical advice for when, the, when this bill is passed? I'm sure they took no technical advice whatsoever and just listened to the ISPs and the advertising consortiums. I'm disgusted by this. Yeah, it would be nice if there was some, uh, some sort of council of general people involved, in, you know, people and technologists and tech companies involved with this. Because obviously, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure the Google and other advertisers are less than pleased about this. Well, Google, it can be easily argued, is... Is also an ISP, yeah, so they're not biased. a great example. Oh, no. They're a little bit... It, it could be argued that they're biased, and they're objecting to this because it's cutting into their business. Right, yeah. But uh, 
Now, number four, zombie super cookies. They already do this. Well, Verizon did yeah, it Verizon. a couple of years ago. Didn't but AT&T the, do it for a while as well? I don't know. I don't, I don't see it mentioned here, but I do see Verizon. But I, do, I am familiar with this, and I have seen it happen. And now they have all the incentive in the world to do this because, you know, they'll put it on your laptop. You'll go somewhere else, and you'll be at a di- using a different ISP. And they say, oh, he's over here now. Oh, is that where he goes for lunch? It ah, really is. Okay. I mean, when you think about it like that, there's a lot of information you can get very easily, very powerful. And then suddenly, right, like, I mean, now you're just those two rows in a database somewhere, and you're correlated. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, spyware, internet providers pre-installing spyware on our our devices, particularly mobile phones. We talked about this last week or the week before, didn't we talk about, um, malware that it came and pre-installed on phones somewhere between the manufacturer and the retailer? Yeah. So, yeah. So you buy a, a hotspot. Surprise, it's going to inject little ads in, into you every now and then because, you know, not only is it a hotspot, but it's also sending information. Uh, you're really making me sad here today, Dan. So I like the last paragraph in here. The net result is simple. This repeal of the FCC's privacy rules won't be won't just be a disaster for Americans' privacy. It will be a disaster for American America's cybersecurity, too. So there is nothing good to come of this. No. Please, everyone, call your politicians. Tell them what an asinine thing they have done and ask them how they're going to make it better because this is absolutely ridiculous. Ask them if your politician is willing to send them their browser history right now. Of every one of their devices, they won't do it, but they feel it's fine but for it's you. It's entirely for you to fine for that. us to do that. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. I'm, I'm just disgusted. All right. Well, that brings us kind of to the to the next article here. What can we do uh, as an end user, as someone subject to this? That is there anything we can do to mm-hmm. mitigate it? Yep. Um, now, which oh, I've lost it. <laughs> Show me the top of the article. Oh, there Let's we go. go there. there we are. That one. Yes. So how we can do this, I've lost it. Just, oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. So a VPN can help, but it's not the ideal thing because then you have to trust the VPN user, um, the, the VPN supplier. But then eventually, you know, at, at the end point, it's going to come out somewhere anywhere. So do you trust your VPN provider or do you trust your ISP? And I can see there now being a huge market for VPNs, but a lot of services such as Netflix do not work over a VPN. Uh, it's not, it's my, it's none of my, none of my ISP's business that I happen to be looking at Netflix or Hulu or whatever, but they seem to think it's important to on-sell that information now. Um, so a VPN can help, but it's not going to fix anything. It's not going to fix everything, um, because unless you use the VPN for absolutely everything. Yes. And prevents a lot of usability issues and, you know, are you going to have an appliance in your home? Like one of those little, you know, auto VPN router things, Mm -hmm. 
how do you get that into the hands of your average consumer? Yeah. It's a trouble, problematic story. Really. So the only people that VPNs are going to help are the people who are knowledgeable and can, and can do something about it. Looking at you audience. But the majority of like, the majority of people are, are going to be subject to this. Yeah. And it's just not fair. It's not fair at all. Yeah. I mean, like, you're even like, all right, well, what? So I have to set up, got to set up special routing to make sure that, you know, only Netflix doesn't go through the VPN. And it's, yeah, that's a, that could be problematic. And then maybe you need stuff, other stuff for work or for other things that don't allow VPNs. Ugh. Yep. Um, Will you will you be changing any of your browsing habits or upstream connection wait. habits? I'm going to wait and see what Verizon declares, and then take action. Is that your ISP? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. We'll have to keep. I'm going to wait. Yeah. I'm not going to follow up on. Not going to change anything right now. I got too much other stuff to do. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, if we go to the next article, we can see where I said that AT&T used to charge extra for privacy. So in 2013, AT&T charged fiber internet customers at least 30 bucks extra a month unless they opted into a system that scanned customers' internet traffic in order to deliver personalized ads. Now, it's interesting that they killed this internet preferences program shortly before the FCC finalized its privacy rules. Um, but you see... As it goes on here, I was talking about this earlier. The ISPs, the ISP lobby groups have argued that privacy rules would prevent them from showing Internet users more relevant advertising. Well, we don't want to see your advertising at all. So don't show it to us. Yeah, you assumed we wanted that any advertising would be relevant to us. That was your mistake. You are an Internet service provider. You are not someone to sit there and throttle my traffic. You are not someone to sit there and... And present ads to me. You are there to deliver the traffic that I have paid you to deliver. Exactly. So just deliver it. Get good at that and stop wasting all your time on stuff that's not relevant to delivering me the traffic that I have paid for. It's so frustrating from a like, can you imagine at the business level, like if you were buying um, buying a, a trunk line somewhere or other, you know, like business to business ISB connection, they're like, oh yeah, we're just going to inject ads into everything that you, you're serving here. That would be, yep. that would be crazy. And yet it's okay to do that to us as the end user. To consumers. Consumers are okay. Yeah. They don't know any better. They won't notice the difference. It's fine. Which I mean is probably sadly true, but doesn't, does not make it right. <sighs> I, 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 all I can think of is that Politicians who voted for this should be forced to have every one of their phone calls uh, conferenced in with a random constituent every time it occurs. Uh, yeah, that's every funny. one of your phone calls will be listened upon. It's like a it's like a weird political chat roulette kind of thing. That's hilarious. Yeah, and I'm sure there's lots of them on chat roulette. Yeah, probably. Uh. Um, so. What's even more disturbing, if you scroll down a little bit, it's up to ISPs to interpret the law. You know, the thing is, there's something called Section 222, but it isn't clear how this affects broadband providers. And I've forgotten what Section 222 is. There it is. So Section 222, it's uh, 
right under ISPs want to be the advertising powerhouse. It's about one-third of the way down. The FCC's reclassifications of ISPs removed FTC authority but imposed privacy requirements from Title II, Section 222 of the Communications Act. The problem is that Section 222 was written in 1996 for telephone services, so the FCC said it would write new broadband-specific rules explaining exactly how Section 222 would be enforced on ISPs. Those rules, including the opt-in requirements, were finalized in 2016. So, theoretically, they could just return the jurisdiction to the FTC by eliminating the privacy rules and eliminating the ISP's common carrier classification, but even that might not work. Because it said any company with a common carrier business cannot be regulated by the FTC at all. That was a ruling in August 2016, even when they're offering non common carrier services. So the common carrier designation is also used for landline, phone, and mobile voice service. That means ISPs like AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint could be entirely exempt from FTC oversight. That's absolutely ridiculous. How can they be exempt? Just because they're a common carrier? If you're a common carrier, do the carrier. If you're involved in advertising, you're not a common carrier. If you're involved in distributing, if you're involved in producing and distributing content, you're not a common carrier. Yeah, I mean, it really kind of reminds me of some of the, the problems we've had with the financial industry, where we've had you know like regular more banks and then these very like speculative investment banks kind of bundled into the same business. It's, it's very similar here, where it's like the regulations maybe make sense in one light, but when this company is a hybrid. This classification really makes it hard to have effective laws. Interesting. Anyway, back down to here. So um, the section on VPNs, Tor, and HTTPS is down below the – yes, below that section you're on now. So basically, this one sentence we sort of covered earlier – To protect your browsing history from your ISP, you need to encrypt your internet traffic, and there are three primary methods of accomplishing that, VPN services, Tor, and HTTPS. Have you ever used Tor? I have. I mean, it's it's been a little while since I had it set up. Uh, I did have the Tor browser configured for a while. Um, It's a really interesting from a theoretical point of view. I've not used it practically. Um, It's slow. It is slow, yes. that That is the thing. But I've had some friends who've run uh, exit exit nodes before and some relays. Uh, so, so do you know why it's slow? Not in a detailed way. Tell us more. All right. So there's an exit node and there's an entry node. And in between, there's a whole lot of other nodes. Right. So you've done a trace route. Mm-hmm. So instead of going from A to B, you're now going A into the Tor node all the way around the tour and then coming out somewhere. Right. And the number of nodes you go through is not always set. It's not always a fixed number. Right. And that, and that way, even um, even the exit node doesn't know where you came from next. They can see your traffic, but they don't necessarily yep. know where it came from. They, 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 they don't know the origins. Yeah. And the key there is uh, the, the reason it's slow is mostly because you're going through a lot of different systems. It's a lot and of extra latency to just add. Yep. And, yeah. 
just just those systems is a lot of latent latency. It's really neat now, that it works at all, though. Yeah. If you really need that privacy, if you're doing something extraordinary, such as what what do we call it? Rogue government employees. Yeah. There you go. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Journalists under fire. You know, anyone in a sensitive position. And we're rooting for you. Exactly. We really are. So even with a VPN, if you're doing a VPN from home to another given place, that also introduces latency, but not quite as much. It's not not as severe. But Tor definitely increases it. So politicians may be dismissive and said, oh, no, anyone that really wants to be private can use Tor. Well, make them use Tor for a month and see how they like it. So... It is good. It has its use, but I wouldn't use it every day. Um, so this article finishes with, it's not too late to call your rep. Well, now it is too late. And I'm sad that I didn't get to this earlier, but I think we've gone on about this almost enough. What was it? And how to stop them. Uh Yeah. I think we've gone on about this enough because. Yep. I mean, I think we've I think we've made it clear. It's getting me grumpy. It's getting us both grumpy. It's probably getting the audience grumpy. It's frustrating to see these developments go exactly the way we don't want them to see, uh, especially now that we've highlighted for you all the reasons this sucks. Um, but there are some things you can do. Um, please do write, contact, call, uh, make your representatives understand that. This is not something that represents you or that that agrees with you and that it does have real ramifications for real people. Uh, and we can start seeing what we can do about it. In the meantime, that is an excellent reason to turn to our first sponsor today. That's Ting. Go on over to techsnap.ting.com. There you will find mobile that makes sense. And guess what? Ting understands your concerns about privacy. Ting, they're, they're just like us. They're cord cutters. Uh, they're people who want to have data plans. That they understand that, you know, in many cases, your cell phone has that important stuff that you need. So to support things like that, Ting does some awesome things. One, you can get started for only $6 a month. That's right, $6 a month. So if you just need a backup line, you need a private phone number you only use to call certain people, Ting is great for that. Or, hey, you want to have a, you know, you don't trust your media ISP, you want to get a couple layers of indirection, you need a connection that goes through Ting and then goes out to the public internet, Six dollars a month, then just you just pay for what you use, your minutes, your megabytes, your messages. Probably if you're like me, it's just gonna be those megabytes. But Ting makes it so simple. Go over to techsnap.ting.com. That will get you a $25 service credit, my friends. Or or maybe you don't have a phone. So that's one of the other things about Ting. You can bring your own phone. Just bring it. You see it right there. B-Y-O-D. Bring your own device. If you don't want to do that, go check out their shop. They got a lot of nice phones. They're unlocked. They don't get in the way of your updates. Hey, look at that. There's an event going on right now. Moto G5 pre-order event. You can get it right from Ting. That's right. It'll work on their GSM. It works on their CDMA. It's awesome. So really don't wait around. Don't get it stuck into a contract with one of these huge companies that are trying to track you. Ting has no interest in that. Ting just want to sell, wants to sell you service that you can use at a price that you understand where you pay for what you use. It's cell phone service for adults, for people who acknowledge, hey, yeah, I want a tether. I want three-way calling. I don't want to pay extra fees. Ting 
is the place for you. Oh, something happened. So go check out Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com today. I think you'll be very pleased. And with that, let's go back to the TechSnap program. What do you have next for us, Dan? Krebs. Oh, we like Krebs. Krebs is our favorite. We like Krebs. We certainly do. And this is good because at the risk of invoking DOS myself, there are some DOS folks, alleged DOS folks, ready to stand trial. Yes, as Krebs has shown, it can be a dangerous topic to talk about, but we'll brave those waters. And not just any DOS folks. No. We'll we'll, We'll get to that later on. So... It starts off with police in Israel are recommending that the state attorney's office indict and prosecute two 18-year-olds suspected of operating VDOS until recently the most popular attack service for knocking websites offline. Two 18-year-olds. Wow. What two-word phrase comes to mind? Two 18-year-olds. Script kiddies. I think this is a very embodiment of that. Yeah, I think so. I mean... So... So basically, this service had tens of thousands, tens of thousands of paying customers and facilitated countless distributed denial of service Right, this is one of the larger, like, uh, DDoS for hire, DDoS as a service operations for a while there. It was big. Yeah. It, It was lucrative. They earned a living at this, That's a living that, that many people could only dream of. And that that's the part that I find atrocious. Yeah, exactly. So they ran these DDoS attacks over the four-year period that it was in business. Four years. So hold on. How old were they? 18? So four years in, they started this when they were 14? How much technical knowledge did they actually have? It really, it really so, makes you wonder. Yeah, what did it, what did it take to get this going? I mean, obviously they learned a lot as they to make it so successful, but still makes you wonder how much they understood or the scope of their and implications mm-hmm. of their actions. I'm sure I'm invoking their wrath at the moment. So anyway, so on October eighth, Krebs on Security published a story about this group, and that story named two young Israelis as the likely owners and operators of VDOS. And within hours of its publication, the two were arrested by Israeli police, placed on house arrest for 10 days and forbidden from using the internet for a month. That's a long time. So what's even more interesting is shortly, you know, they were never charged. So this was September 2016, September, October, November, December, January, February, March. So only five months ago. So they weren't charged at that time. However, this this week, Israeli police sent letters to lawyers for both men stating that the official investigation was nearing completion and they planned to urge government prosecutors to pursue, pursue criminal charges. Now, according to a story published Sunday by the Israeli news outlet, themarker.com, the government of Sweden is also urging Israeli prosecutors to pursue formal charges. Yeah, interesting. It's unclear exactly why the Swedish government is interested, blah, 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 blah. Shortly after those attacks in March 2016, 
Somerville, Massachusetts-based intelligence firm Recorded Future published an analysis linking the assaults against Swedish media sites to VDOS and to Applejack, the hacker name allegedly used by one of those two Israelis. So, now if we scroll down here a little bit further, they allegedly started the VDOS when they were 14 years old. By the time it was shut down last September, it attracted tens of thousands of customers who paid for attacks in PayPal. Wow. When when VDOS's PayPal accounts were shut down, the service briefly shifted to accepting Bitcoin. So, Krebs says that his September 2016 investigation of the hacking of VDOS revealed that in just two of the that in just two of the four years the services are in operation, it brought in revenues of more than $600,000. That's $300,000 a year. That's $150,000 each. Not $300,000? That's, yeah, $150,000 each for a kid under 18. That's a nice salary. Wow. And it's probably not the full income. No, I'm sure not. Wow. So. It's amazing how... Uh, Apparently lucrative this is. But no good deed goes unpunished. Krebs and security paid a heavy price for breaking the story on VDOS's hacking and the subsequent arrest of its alleged proprietors. Less than two weeks after those stories were published in September 2016, excuse me, this site came under one of the largest DDoS attacks the internet has ever witnessed. It was huge. I remember reading about it at the time, not thinking much of it because I was busy. Yeah, right, exactly. But yeah, no, that, it was that, made he- that made headlines. And was covered on the prior invocation of this show. It was. So, here's the kicker. Here's the defense. So, the lawyers have said that their clients were merely operating a defensive stressor service sold to companies that wished to test whether their sites could withstand large cyber attacks. I'd like to see that contract between them and Krebs. I'd like to see that. Find out what it's like. So, law enforcement officials, both in the U.S. and abroad, say stressor services enable illegal activity and that they've recently begun arresting both owners and users of those services. Well, it's one thing to stress your own sites, but I don't see anyone paying for that. Not not at this magnitude. Right, so, no, and, and certainly not. I mean, you would probably, that would probably be a package of, you know, you do your security audits and you do load testing. You probably can do load testing yourself or with, with your clients and yep. not some sort of sketchy fly-by-night DDoS for hire service. No. And they're just making a legal argument right. here. Exactly. Some legal games we can play. I'm sure the I'm sure the lawyers don't believe it. No. So finally, one last point. In October twenty sixteen, the US Justice Department arrested two nineteen year old men alleged to have operated a stressor service affiliated with the hacking group known as the Lizard Squad. I don't know them. Now, those of you that are listening, I urge you to go and read the comments on this, especially pay attention to Mike's question. How would 2FA have prevented any of this? 
Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So Krebs, you know, engages him a couple of times and then he realizes it's not worth it. But there's a whole lot of stuff down through here talking about Mike. And basically, this is why you should not read comments on articles. Yes, that's something we've learned uh, well and true here yep. at Jupiter Broadcasting. Don't, don't, don't waste your time reading the comments. Just, just stay away. Stay away. All mm. right. Well, anything else you'd like to comment on this story? It's definitely interesting to learn a little bit more about this kind of secretive and weird operation. I can't see anyone defending these folks. I can't see anyone saying, okay, what they've done is not wrong. It's very different from someone who's, you know, uh, look at all the, uh, look at some other people who who have legitimately reported a service vulnerability and have been arrested and put in jail. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, this is not that. This is not that. Yeah, I think you're right. It seems, it seems kind of unequivocal that. What they're doing was taking advantage of other people, attacking legitimate businesses for profit. Yep. yep. We don't like them. We'll take them out. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, then, uh, if this has put you in the entrepreneurial spirit, you should find out about our next sponsor. That's DigitalOcean. Uh, my friends, DigitalOcean, they are the simple cloud hosting provider that's dedicated to making it easy for you, easy and intuitive to spin up a cloud server of your dreams. So just go on over. DigitalOcean.com. We've got a promo code. Yeah, that's right. Promo code SNAPOcean. That gets you a $10 credit. And wait till you find out that DigitalOcean, why they've got a droplet that starts at just $5 a month. Yeah, that's right. $5 a month. Go over to their pricing page. There they've got this very handy. It's simple. It's transparent. You click on the monthly prices. So, you know, hey, I just need a month of this, or I want to know what's it going to cost me monthly, or maybe, and this is, gets a little cloudy here, guys, you can get hourly prices. So if you just need to spin up a droplet, I like this uh, six cents an hour one over there, four gigs of memory, two cores, 60 gig SSD disk, four terabytes of transfer. And that's not those, uh, you know, oh yeah, you can use up to four terabytes, but your speeds are so slow, you'll never do it. No. DigitalOcean's got 40 gigabit E right to the KVM hypervisors. They know what they're doing. They're using industry-leading technology. That's what makes them such an awesome cloud provider. They've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt, and I'm sure more coming soon. So whether you want it to be the endpoint of a little VPN you run yourself, you want to start a startup and DigitalOcean can be there as your your first run of, of hosting provider, they can do it anything like they'll scale with you they've got awesome things like they've got load balancers now a monitoring program in beta they've got redundant attachable cloud storage ssd back that you can just add and move between droplets they've got private networking if you're in the same dentist center and you have two nodes you don't pay for that makes it really easy if you want to run backups send zfs snapshots all kinds of things so don't waste any more time don't use some bargain basement vps provider that doesn't give you real virtualization just go over to DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code SNAPOcean, all one word, SNAPOcean. That'll get you a $10 credit and on your way to spinning up the droplet of your dreams. Woohoo. Do you have any DigitalOcean droplets over there, Mr. Dan? Yep. Nice. I have an, a long-time website, uh, a website that I used to look after for years and years and years. Uh, they sold the business and wanted to keep the email running, and so it's now r- running in a 
$20 a month digital ocean droplet nice. or maybe 10. I'm not sure. It's one of the two. Yeah. It's running ZFS, um, which people may think weird. Why are you running ZFS in a virtual environment? I said, because it does. It's still totally useful. Checksum. Yeah. You get checksums. Checksums. I can, I can snapshot. I can yep. roll back. I, yep. Even if you're not great. necessarily doing it for like the raw block, you know, attached to real block devices performance and all the other things of the event, there's still a lot of stuff that, that is worthwhile. It is wonderful. So it I guess the that's best a best thing since sliced bread. I guess that's a natural segue into uh, the next topic of the top of the show here. Isn't that interesting? How does How that, that work? Happen? I have no idea. I don't know who did that. So since I first started off uh, these notes, I've decided to misappropriate, uh, misappropriate Alan Jude's uh, slides from VBSECon 2015. And I was at this talk, and I'm going to go through it mainly because I really like what he's done with it. But most of this is just be me briefly rambling about some of the things that I like about ZFS. Do so, have I ever talked about ZFS before? Have I ever mentioned it? Like that it's a good thing? Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about it a little bit, uh, but really only in passing. We haven't we haven't dedicated okay. dedicated some serious time yet. So this isn't going to be a lot of time. This is just going to be enough to get people interested who have never heard about it, never used it, never tried it. So the key thing is, is and when you're reading the show notes, don't read it in isolation. You have to be listening to what I'm saying now. Otherwise, it'll it, everything is very general. And I'm sure people will say, oh, no, that's not exactly how it's like. It's like this. And I say, well, yeah. But we're keeping things very general and high level, and I hope I'm not misleading anyone. And there's a lot more to learn about it. So do your own investigation as well as what I'm doing. This is just a teaser, just to get you started. So I think the ZFS is a great lifesaver for sysadmins. I think it has so many impressive features that make day-to-day administration of systems much less stressful. Um, I can give you a great example. Um, a friend of mine, Mark, whose name we can't remember, uh, was developing a version of subversion for a strain of Linux which no longer had packages available. And we wanted... We wanted a version of subversion with a more recent OpenSSL for obvious reasons. But we didn't have the benefits of the FreeBSD packaging system. We had to build this from source. And when we were building OpenSSL, well, he was building it. I was just listening. When you built OpenSSL, it installed to base. In other words, it overwrote the stuff that was... In, in slash bin, slash S bin, stuff like that. The problem with that is you only got to do that once. Because once you've overwritten your base OS, it's crap. So if you have to redo it again, you get a reinstall. But because Mark was using a jail, all he had to, a jail on a ZFS FreeBSD system, all he had to do was roll back. And all those changes, all those horrible things that that the make install had done were gone. And he could keep doing that until he got it right. And that's just 
one thing, the snapshots. Now, people will say, yeah, 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 you can get snapshots on other file, file systems. Well, yes, you can. But don't judge it in isolation. Uh, judge ZFS based on all the other things you get. Um, now, the easiest way to think of ZFS is you put a whole bunch of disks together and there's your bucket. And it draws from all of those drives and gives you your disk space. Now, that doesn't mean you have two one-terabyte drives and suddenly it presents to you something that looks like a two-terabyte drive um, because that's what is commonly referred to as striping. And if one of those drives dies, they're both useless because the information that you've been writing to them has been put half on one and half on the other. And a stripe has no redundancy. One one. One element of the VDEV dies, and we'll talk about VDEVs in a second, and you're gone. The, the beauty of ZFS is that it can do at the software level what is usually done at the hardware level, and that is redundancy. You've all heard about RAID, which is a redundant array of independent disks, or lately has been inexpensive disks. And that's the key when it comes to ZFS is you can use com commodity hardware. You can use consumer-grade hardware and get an incredibly reliable, robust system that people used to spend thousands and thousands of dollars upon not that long ago. And now we can get that in a desktop machine, like just stuff you can buy from the local computer store. Right. You don't need to go buy like a, a super high-end, fancy proprietary RAID controller you can use awesome open source, open ZFS. Mm -hmm. And any special stuff that you might need, you can get on eBay secondhand and they're very reliable. There you go. Um, um, by that, I mean the HBAs, the host, is it host bus adapters? Yeah, the so. things you plug all the drives in. Yeah, exactly. You got to get, you got to get everything connected. But once, yeah, once like, you're there. Like one one thing that you can use and that the Freenas uh, folks recommend is a bunch of M1015s, IBM M1015s, okay. or the LSI 92 thing type things. I've got a bunch of them. I have I have several that are unused nice. if anyone wants to buy them secondhand. In fact, I seem to recall offering someone on the FreeBSC project one of these secondhand, and I never got back to them. So Maybe if you're nice, he'll even autograph it. I can autograph the card. Yeah. Um, so VDEVs. You put two drives together into a VDEV, and that's your VDEV. That's a simple way of thinking about what a VDEV does. But the beauty is, if you have two drives, you can make a mirror. And if one of the hard drives dies, your system still keeps running because it's running off the other drive. And when you replace that other drive, chances are you'll have to power it off to do that. But when you replace that other drive and it comes back up, you can say, hey, here's a new drive, use it. And it just copies all the data over from the other drive and you're back up and running. And you say, I remember, I remember a computer shop owner. I was describing to him what RAID was. And I said, well, here's a mirror. Think of it that way. And he says, well, hold on. You've doubled the number of drives, so haven't you now doubled your chance of having a hardware failure? No. 
That's not how it works. What you've done is you've halved. Well, what we're getting into probabilities here. <laughs> it's but the reason the reason you have two drives is so that if you do encounter a hardware failure, you can still keep working, and at your leisure, you can go and get another drive. It's like you have to. You really have to realize you're not concerned about the individual drives anymore, and that's what the system abstraction lets you do: is consider yep. the whole operational state of the entire system. Exactly. You know. You know how Google Google's most intricate code is designed not to cater for failure, but basically to accept that failure is going to occur and just keep working anyway. It doesn't matter that, that something has died. Exactly. You just you get it somewhere else. I think I heard something, um, something once about that. I mean, if you have a fleet of 10,000 machines, the chance that all 10,000 at any one time are all operating correctly is just basically zero. You got to design, design around that. Same with, yep. same with drives. Yep. Um, so let's say you've created this big ZFS rate array. You've bought three hard drives and put them all together doesn't matter what way you've done it, just as long as you haven't done a stripe. Because if you really like your data, you won't do a stripe. Um, so once you've got it all there and you want to create different file systems, um, say you want to give one of your roommates some disk space and your other roommates some disk space, but a third roommate is very hoggish and they keep filling up the drive. So what you can do is you can give that hoggish roommate a quota and say okay you do a zfs create hoggish and then set a quota on that and say you can never go over this size so in effect you've created a virtual hard drive that has a set limit on it so it's like you've given them their own hard drive that's not exactly what they see but that's an easy analogy to to look at um you can do other things like uh, turn M time off. Sorry, A time. You want to turn access time off. Why? Because it, every time a file is read, it causes another update to the file system. You know, that, that's something I run into, especially if you're using um, jails or other containers and maybe you're doing a lot of, um, you know, I've run in um, like uh, dpackage or apt. Uh, that's something that ZFS made really easy. I could just turn that off as well as some other optimizations that in other file systems, um, you might have to go to further lengths to make sure that, like, yeah. you know, do less, yeah. do less F-syncs, do less file touching, all, all that stuff. ZFS makes it super easy to configure. You can turn on compression. You yeah. can turn on different levels, different types of compression, different algorithms, different uh, alg- uh, compression depths. Um I know that the volumes that I use for Postgres has a different record size. I know that the volumes that I use for um, my backups have a very large record size. I can't remember what it, what it was. Excuse me, I can't even remember the maximum record size. But all of these little fine-tuning things that you can do is just... It's really impressive. And... The the best thing that I can say about it is is try it and use it for a little while. It, it may be confusing at first, but if you ever need to write a script for it, all the parameters are scriptable. It's not like you have to invoke some crazy command line thing. 
Uh, you can literally say ZFS create um, uh, big data slash WES, and boom, there's a file system mounted and ready to go. Uh, you can then start writing to it. There, you're done. Yep. Yeah, it's nice how it does that. How it um, kind of changes the way you think about the abstractions, um, and suddenly you you know you can you can deal with all of your hardware, and then mm-hmm. then you're at the online software level, and suddenly you can you know you don't need to worry about partitions. Mm-hmm. You don't have to make you don't have to use something like LVM and then have a file system that's not aware that it's on that. Everything becomes first class. Hmm. Uh, you said partitions. Yeah, you don't have to worry about partitions. Isn't that great? In FreeBSD, you create a partition on the disk for ZFS. Um, uh, in, I think it was SunOS or LumOS, you just give the whole disk to ZFS. Right, but I've seen in FreeBSD, you give a partition. Um, and so what I often do is give it not the whole partition. If I'm using the whole disk, I don't partition the whole disk because if it comes time to replace that drive, it might be a sector or two smaller. So I save a few meg or gig at the end of the drive just in case. Um, but yeah, you, you, you get three, three drives, put them together all in a mirror. You've just got one big space to put all your data. And if you want to create slash var, slash temp, slash var log, you can put different restrictions on those. You can say, okay, slash temp can't grow any bigger than this. You can get, give someone a home directory and say, okay, they can use as much space as you want. Or you can say that, okay, on this file system, you must always have 50 gig free. Why? Because every night I dump the database and it's 50 gig in size. So you always have to have 50 gig free. It's kind of an administrator's best friend in that regard. It, it makes it very flexible to make, you know, runtime. Yep. You've already configured the system, but oh wait, yeah, we really need to redo yep. how that works. Mm-hmm. Easy peasy. No new image, no new, none of that. And that's not even getting into snapshots and ZFS send receive to send yeah, the, the stuff copy over on the right. Internet, so. I mean, yeah, because it's a copy on write, because it doesn't overwrite the old data, it always does a copy. It means that if you take a snapshot and then want, want to and send that to another system, and then, then you want to update the remote system with everything that's happened, it sends only the changed data. So if you changed 10 bytes within a 20-gig file, it doesn't send the whole 20 gigs of the file. Right. It just finds that little block that changes and sends that. Right, and my understanding is that it uh, just only sends any blocks that have a birth time after, after. Right, which that, that that's awesome. That it's just yep. so much more efficient. It's a sensible way to do things. It also plays really nicely if you're if you're using jails or um, running other sorts of containers or other things. It makes it really easy. Yep. You can share all the files for your base thing and then just have different views or. Hey, you know, this one, we want to update all the base things. This guy needs a special application. This needs a different one. You don't have to duplicate everything below. And sometimes what I do in jails is I give a certain directory within the jail its own ZFS file system uh, so that then that can be snapshotted separately and backed up. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, Like my mail directory, Mailder, that gets a separate directory. I know I've done it a couple other times, but I can't think of where. Oh, um, sometimes you have a certain directory and you want it to be very, very fast. So I mount a a file system from 
from an SSD. Very nice, yes. That makes so sense. you've got a hard drive, hard drive, hard drive, and then in the middle of it, you've got a little SSD that's from another. Right. It's just like a, a secret mount that's in there, and it's completely transparent to the users. So in that same vein, I mean, and ZFS also has a lot of things you can use SSDs for as well. Like if you, you know, um, it's it's amazing how many features they've really considered things. Whether you're using it just to, on your your own machine, your laptop, your home system, your NAS, all the way up to hey, we have petabytes of data that we need to mm-hmm. store. And one last point: some people sometimes say, "I only have one hard drive in my system. What uses ZFS?" And the answer to that is snapshots. And what is it? Checksums. Checksums. Very important. When it writes data, it does a checksum of the data it wrote, and it stores that there. When it goes to read it back, it does a checksum of the data and then compares it to what it was when it had written it. And if it's not the same, it tells you, and it says, oh, the data get changed. And if there's another copy of the data, it fixes it. But if there isn't, well, at least you know the data changed. Yeah, and even with uh, you know one one hard drive, it... That also opens up a lot of things that, um, what is it, uh, B-admin, the, the boot environment system. Uh, so you can, you, know, you can update uh, your system, and then if things don't work out, you can boot right back into the previous version. So that can make really anyone who's worried about that or you want to have unattended upgrades really yep. makes things a lot safer. I'm going to upgrade. Save this copy away. Okay, let me upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. Okay, boot from this. Boot up. Oh, it doesn't work. Okay, boot that other thing, please. Oh, okay, I'm back where I started. Exactly where you started. You know, people today might be familiar with like AWS snapshots and those kind of things, except that's super slow. ZFS already has it, and it's instant, or at least way faster. Mm -hmm. (sighs) All right, well, anything else you'd like to add about Ah. this marvelous file system? If ZFS is available on your operating system of choice, try it. If it's not, try another OS. Yeah. I would like to say I uh, I use it very regularly on Linux. Uh, ZFS on Linux has, has come a long way. It works very reliably. If you're on the latest Ubuntu, they compile the driver for you. You just apt-get install ZFS. It works very nicely. Ubuntu has some good documentation. The FreeBSD handbook is awesome if you need advice, even if you're not using FreeBSD. Alan wrote some of that. Yes, he did. Look at that. I was going to show that. Our good friend, Mr. Alan Jude, helping everyone yeah, out by updating sounds- the docs. <sighs> Excellent. All right, anything else you'd like to add? No. Okay, well, I, that very naturally brings us into our last sponsor this evening. We love ZFS. They love ZFS. That's right. I'm talking about, you know who? IX Systems. They are awesome friends. They make hardware we drool over every week running amazing Intel processors. Yeah, that's right. You like Intel processors? So do they. That's why all their servers ship with the latest and greatest Intel processors. So go on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There you will find the ultimate guide for buying a new server for open source. ixsystems has been around. They know open source. They know the internet. I mean, the server will work for closed source too. If that's that's your thing, they make beautiful servers. The best servers. Uh, So just go check them out today. Whether you're interested in a new server for work, you, you know, you're talking to people who you need some new rigs, the latest and greatest hardware, you have some performance issues that you want to get solved, or, hey, you just got, you know, you heard us talking about ZFS, you want some of that for yourself, go on over to ixsystems.com, check out their FreeNAS Mini. That is one of the easiest ways to get started with ZFS in your house, getting all those benefits that we were talking about, snapshots, checksums, maybe you want to use ZVols for your virtual machines. 
that is all possible. And IX Systems contributes to the open source development. They help support OpenZFS, which is the upstream project running the open source ZFS. FreeNAS is open source. They support TrueOS, which is their uh, desktop operating system. It's a really great, you can tell they support the community, that this is something that's important to them just as much as it's important to us. So if that doesn't get you excited enough, go check out their blog. They always have interesting stuff there. Here's their latest post. TrueNAS Storage Primer on ZFS for data storage professionals. You can see that they really recognize that OpenZFS is, is the premier file system for data integrity, data reliability. Uh, that's why they trust it. That's why they build appliance based on it. And that's why we love that they're one of our sponsors. So if you're getting the runaround from your current hardware provider, you have sluggish support, you have support reps that don't know what they're talking about, have to get back to you, take too long, you just don't trust, or continued hardware problems without the support that you think that you deserve, just stop. Don't waste your time. Call up IX Systems. They have an awesome team of talented sales engineers. Emphasis on engineers here. They want to work with you. They want to help you get the server that meets your need. They understand that your server should be custom because you have a particular problem that needs to be solved, whether you're you're running a new database server or you need a monster new, huge RAM, awesome special CPU server, you know, for your brand new business. It doesn't matter. IX Systems wants to work with you. So don't waste any time. Go get a new server from ixsystems.com today. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That lets lets them know that you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. That brings us to this week's feedback, where we reach deep into the mailbag, mailbag of mystery, pull out our favorite feedback items from you guys, and we talk about it. So, this week, we've had a little bit of a change. The format may look different but it's the same feedback from our same favorite audience. Up first, we've got a letter from Jake about dealing with waste heat. Good morning. Thanks for the show. You're very welcome. Dan, I'm curious about how you deal with all the heat. Your rack, your wonderful rack, let me just let me just editorialize here. All the waste heat that your rack produces in the summer. I myself have up to four desktop computers running as various servers and routers. Right now, they're in a closet, and we just avoid opening the door as much as possible. Stay away from the closet. What I'd like to do is relocate most of the machines to my garage. The trouble is that the garage is not air-conditioned. I'd like to place the machines in a small cabinet to avoid paying for air conditioning in an entire 10 by 10 room. My question, does anybody make a small, energy-efficient air conditioner just big enough to cool the inside of a wardrobe-sized cabinet? Or is there a better way to deal with the heat? Jake. Thank you very much for writing us, Jake. What do you think, Dan? It seems like, I mean, firstly, we don't know where Jake lives, so that may change things. Uh, but it seems like you deal with it pretty well. Um, this is a current temperature in my studio. There you go, 82 degrees. And that's with having the door closed for a while. Right. So, um, first suggestion, a small window-mounted air conditioner may be cheaper than you think. And for a 10 by 10 room, it may be enough for what you need because a lot of people run an AC all year long just cooling down one room. Uh, That said, uh, if you want to keep using your closet, I've seen a lot of stuff on Reddit about venting just one closet. Now, it all depends on, on your architecture, but maybe you might be able to vent it 
somewhere a lot better than just that room and at least keep the cool air, keep the hot air exhausted. Um, even just a, a fan on the ceiling, uh, like cut a hole, vent it up. I don't know if what's above. If, if it's the attic, you may be in luck. But if it's not, you're out of luck. But what about the walls? Can you vent there somewhere? Um, yeah, see if your neighbors it, don't mind. Just uh, give, your, give them your waist heat. You can always buy uh, fully enclosed racks and then mount, uh, buy a small portable AC and have it vent into the rack space. Um, you may even be able to buy um, a full height rack and put the AC unit in the bottom of the rack. Um, you, you've got how many, what was it, four? Four? Four desktop computers. So yeah, they, they, they could fit in a rack and still have room at the bottom for your AC unit if you got that type of a rack. Even if you bought a regular rack, you could easily build something with scrap timber and even just um, a thick polyethylene, not polyethylene, but you know what I mean? The Dexter plastic. Yeah, no, that, that might work. That, that seems like there's a, there's a number of opportunities there. Um, Get onto Reddit and go into the Home Lab Reddit. Oh, yeah, that's a great subreddit. And ask in there. A lot of people have done this already. A lot of people, very knowledgeable. Um, what it tends to be there is people who uh, use big hardware at home and then have hardware at home, big hardware at work, and then have hardware at home as well. So a- ask there. Um, you may not have to do anything in the garage to, to keep it cool. Um, uh, tell us what your temperatures in the garage get to, because usually a garage is cooler than the outside, so you may be okay. And even just having window open. Uh, the other thing is um, you may want to invest in very good air filters. Uh, you'll find a link in the show notes for a company in South Africa that builds custom uh, air filters and standard air filters. They're really good. I've got some of them on some of these machines at the back. They're not so good for rack uh, mount hardware, but they're very good for desktops. Uh, Don't let the fact that they're shipping from overseas put you off. I've gotten very good service from them. I like this website. Stop the number one computer killer. Yes. But hey, they Uh, come very, very highly recommended there. I remember posting on Reddit and saying, look at these great air filters. And people said, I think you should stop paying money on air filters and find out, find out why your house is so dusty. <laughs> uh, that's, I mean, well, that's... if you had an air filter, you'd know why, how dusty your house was. Yeah. So that, that's one thing I might say to Jake, too, is uh, I don't know how long you've had that little thermometer there, but um, perhaps investing in some metrics, you know, be able to track how much heat you do get, what, how it changes after you've moved things might help you answer your questions what was the temperature before uh 82 something 82 something because it's not exactly i think it was 82 two before yeah well it's going down going down fast warm for you is that okay are you kind of a warmer person sitting in a t-shirt ah yeah that's true t-shirt and duluth trading cargo pants (laughs) that's right what temperature do you keep the rest of your home if you if i do if i may ask it's unheated oh okay this heats the entire apartment. See, so that's another. Long. It's almost like you know, instead of a wood stove, you just you have you have your rack. So, 
I don't pay for heating in winter. Um, the the far end of the apartment will get rather cool in winter. When the temperature goes down below freezing, it does get rather cool. Yeah. And I live in a part of Pennsylvania where we get snow. <laughs> Pardon, we get snow, but it doesn't necessarily stay. Yeah. The average daytime high is just above freezing. So. Okay. Yeah. It's not that bad. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like there's a lot of options there for Jake. Yeah. So, in, yeah, what do I do? In the summer, um, I often work out, <laughs> work out in the living room rather than in here. Uh, this will be my first summer with this rack, but I have a feeling that I'm putting out less BTUs than I was before. Um, so it may not be as uncomfortable, but it, it probably will get up to 80 or 90 in here easily if I don't have the AC on. Um, there's an AC vent right up there, and uh, I try and keep the blinds closed. Um, I try to open up the the windows when I, you know, everything you you normally do to keep the place cool. So that makes sense. Yeah. If it works for your house in the summer, it'll probably work when you uh, have a rack in your in your garage. And, and yeah, I'm saving money in winter heating, but having to spend a little more money. Money on cooling. July and August. Yeah. Like two weeks of July, most of August. That's when my AC is the most. But that's the only time I use AC or heating. Nice. That's very reasonable. All right. Well, uh, hopefully that helped you, Jake. Uh, please write back into us and let us know how it works out and what you end up deciding to do and how hot things get. That brings us to our next piece of feedback today. Uh, Caleb writes in to us. He's wondering about Postgres and MySQL. Hey, Dan and Wes, love the show. You've both done a great job filling big shoes. They are indeed big shoes. Thank you very much, Caleb. I'd like to follow up on Dan's strong expressed preference for Postgres over MySQL. I'm not all that familiar with the advantages Postgres might have over MySQL. I've used both MySQL and MariaDB as a backend RDBMS for hosting a few small projects where they were the default or recommended option. But I am curious if I would be better off using Postgres, given the option. Thanks, Caleb. I have seen that myself. You know, a lot of things that just start out, hey, this is what we use, MySQL, yeah. MariaDB. Um, yeah. So it, it may be very helpful here. Especially, you know, I, I'd be curious as well where you see, you know, which particular areas, what workloads Postgres may be particularly advantaged to. Well, if you're just running a website and it's not a lot of traffic and it's read-only, sure, use MySQL if you really have to. Um, I have, I think, four WordPress websites. They all they all run Postgres, not by choice, but because that's what's supported. You can do Post. Sorry, they all run MySQL, not by choice, but that's because what WordPress supports. Uh, they do have a Postgres solution. But it's unsupported, unmaintained, and no, I'm not going to do that. So it's 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 winning WordPress, but again, that's mostly read only. Um, if you're doing stuff like I was doing uh, back in 2000, I think it was February of 2000, I was creating a website called Fresh Ports, and I started MySQL. Uh, I wrote a post about it. You'll find it in the show notes. And then come, oh, by September or January, I had switched to Postgres. 
because my background was using stuff like DB2, uh, Sybase. Uh, I can't remember the other stuff. That's my show notes that are gone. And um, so I was used to having things like stored procedures and functions and data integrity, um, like foreign keys and primary keys. And MySQL didn't have all of that 17 years ago. 17? Yeah. Wait. Is that right? 2010? Seven. Can't, oh, yeah. 2000. Yeah. No, it was 17 years ago. It, it was January 2000. And then by September 2000, I swapped over to Postgres. Um, and I swapped over because the database that I was writing for Freshports needed stored procedures. It needed functions. It needed relational integrity. And I wasn't getting that from Post, from MySQL. Now, people will point and say, well, MySQL has that now. And I say, well, it's about time it has it. But there's a lot of other funky things that MySQL does very funny. Um, and you can easily search for MySQL versus Postgres. So I'm not going to go into that. But I will say that the Postgres development team does a lot of very stringent, un- stringent analysis of any changes they're about to do. And they are very particular about protecting your data. It is my database of choice. And if you're putting anything into it that's important, anything transactional, anything that you're doing huge queries on, do Postgres. You'll be much happier. Now, in that same vein, if you have an application that does a file open, consider using SQLite instead of a straight text file. Use SQLite. It'll make your life a lot easier. Yeah, I think that's uh, good advice. And, and, and frequently, especially if you're only using something for personal use, if it's a very simple mm-hmm. application, SQLite yep. can be more than what mm-hmm. you need. Don't even don't even bother with MySQL or, or Postgres. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're going to scale it up, you're going to have real users production. Yeah. Don't. But, no. you know, if you're just running like, uh, I think I am actually using Postgres for my Quassel server, uh, but for a long time it was on SQLite and that worked just fine. Never use Quassel. Uh, well, it uh, almost did. Yeah. It's IRC, well. it's IRC, right? Yes, but it's, it's got yeah. the uh, the front-end, back-end split, so instead of yeah. having a bouncer, you have a front-end and connect with the client. Well, I've got the front-end, which is textual, okay. uh, yeah. a, an OSX IRC client, and my back-end is ZNC. Ah, uh, yes. I've not used that one, but I've, I've heard, I heard many things about it. So ZNC is what actually connects... Right, it does so all your, IRC, yeah, yeah, stays present and, so, yeah. and sends yep. you updates, all that stuff. Yep. Excellent. Okay, well, anything else you'd like to add there for Caleb? Um, yeah, use Postgres. You'd be much happier. <laughs> uh, short, simple, sweet, succinct. Yeah, uh, I like that a lot. It, it also it plays well. Um, you know, there's a lot of projects that, that use it or rely on it. Uh, there's also a lot of people that use it for, for mm-hmm. myriad things. They've got all the, the JSONB support and other things, so you can you can use it um, kind of like a NoSQL-type database for some applications. It's very flexible. It might work for your lo- workload and is really worth probably looking at as a first option. And that brings us to this week's rather ridiculous roundup. We've sure got a lot packed in here today, Dan. I mean, that's a good thing and a bad thing. We have to go a little quick, but yep, there's a lot yep. of awesome stories for folks to reflect on. Well, this first one I found interesting because it's the first thing I've read 
that sort of talked about jails and containers in the same breath. And now I sort of understand a bit more about containers. Mm -hmm. I know someone who's doing a lot of day-to-day -day work on containers, and I asked for their opinion on this. And they said, yeah, it's pretty accurate, but I can't comment upon jails. But that's okay. I can comment. <laughs> We've jails. got you, yeah. So have a read of, of Jesse's article here about um, about. VMs versus jails versus Solaris zones versus containers. And you can't really compare them because they are totally different things. And the point that gets made first is that where it is. A container is just a term people use to describe a combination of Linux namespaces and C groups. Linux names and C groups are first class objects. They are not containers. So basically, it's this combination of tools put together is what they're calling a container. It's not It's not a jail. It's not a VM, stuff like that. So if you go over all, all this list of stuff that she says that you can do and not do with containers and jails, there you go. Now, the one thing she does talk about is complexity equals bugs. And she says, this extra complexity leads to bugs that lead to container escapes. Don't get me wrong. You could also escape a VM, a jail, or a zone, but the design is not as complicated as that of the primitives that make up containers. Less is more, and the less complexity you have, the less likely you will have odd edge case bugs. So it's pretty hard to get out of a jail. I can't comment on VMs or zones. I mean, you do zone... occasionally see VM exploit bugs, so it's definitely yeah, possible, but, right? Um, yeah. But, but you're right. Um, you don't hear it. There's very few about jails, and jails have been around for about at least 10 or 11 years. And if Paul Henningkamp is listening, which I doubt he is, but he, should so be. he, he will correct us. Yes, exactly. No, I, I like this uh, article a lot. Jesse's obviously a um, very smart and, and talented lady. And I think it is oh, good yeah. to understand you know, that these there are, there are different design principles. I don't know if you can say there's design goals for containers necessarily as a, a you know, subset of different concepts. Um, but I, I think she's also right to point out that there is some utility um, and that when you think about it different, it can help you understand how to leverage. Like there are a lot of times I'll just use, you know, on, on Linux, I'll just use a network namespace, for instance. I don't need all the other kinds of yep. isolation. That's all I want. Yep. Um, so, Well, I need to learn more about this desire and flexibility and control that they mentioned, uh, mentioned below. And I need to learn more about Linux namespaces because... I can't comment on it. Well, that would be uh, definitely a topic we could do a deep dive or at least just a section on in the future. That might be yep, fun. Yep, yep. Here's what I learned about namespaces. Here's how you can correct me. I watched TechSnap and all I got was this yep, yep. talk about namespaces. I don't namespaces. watch TechSnap anymore. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, since we're jam-bagged, on to the next yes, article. On to the next. Now, this one, Drew Levine first posted this. But I saw it posted by the URL in as well. But this is very funny. So basically, a dishwasher has a directory traversal bug. So basically, it has an HTTP interface. And you can do this simple little fetch and get the shadow password file. Oh, my gosh. Just like wow. That. Just like that. That is a very basic vulnerability. Yeah, that's really basic. funny. It's still crazy. I'm still, I mean, like, I don't hate IoT. I'm not trying to be a naysayer, but it's still weird when you see things like this and you're like, a dishwasher? 
a yeah. dishwasher, but I could also see like maybe maybe I want my dishwasher to send me an email when it's done or something. I don't really, but maybe someone wants that. But this is totally just like an argument for this is why you want VLANs or, or some sort of network isolation for your weird IoT devices. To be honest, this is not a household dishwasher. This is a commercial right. level washer right. and disinfector. So it's not something you're going to have in your kitchen, despite some of the photographs that have accompanied this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, that is a, that is an important distinction. Um, and that that's where it might make sense that you want an interface to be able to control it or that sort of thing. So. But when you have uh, have something like that, got to get your security right. Pay for it. So speaking of security and vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. our next article, Apple says it fixed CIA vulnerabilities years ago. Yep. Interesting. It's as if, it's as if they it's as if they knew. So we we had a. We covered the CIA stuff, I think, twice, once in brief and then once more in depth. And um, basically, this post is just saying that Apple has already fixed all this stuff. Uh, the phone attack was described, the iPhone attack was described in January 2009, a full six months before the iPhone 3G was replaced. So the MacBooks were described in documents dated up through 2013 and described models current up through the middle of that year. And so it seems to all have been fixed already. So we said at the time that this stuff is not really, was it this stuff that we said that we, the average person doesn't have have to worry about it because these are all very targeted espionage as opposed to mass surveillance. Yes. Yeah, that was. So it is something to worry about, but don't don't stress your life out over it. Yes, a different a different threat level here, definitely. Yes, yeah. It it also kind of reminds me. It seems like they're usually a little bit ahead of the curve, or at least uh, competing well. Like when there was all that issue about like uh, when the when the authorities wanted to unlock that iPhone, um, and it would what they had done would not have worked on the latest generation of iPhone, um, where where it has the separate security processor and and, uh, enclosure or whatever. so it's interesting to see this this development and their continued uh, say what you will about business practices, about their design, about their products at all. But they clearly take their customer security seriously. Yes. Okay. So in the opposite vein, if you don't take your customer's data security or you just had an accident, Troy Hunt's got some advice here about what to do after you failed. I like that. That's and, a good title. And Troy Hunt has some experience and stuff that has failed. He did the cloud pets. Did he? Do, I think he did think the he cloud did, pets. Yes. He did. So he's some experience on seeing uh, what happens when people fail. So everyone who has data that is publicly accessible or not, as the case should be, um, have a read of this. Have a read of it now. Have a read of it before you need it, because when you need it, it's too late. You got to have a plan in effect before it happens and follow that plan. Just like with most disaster DRC, that, that sort of thing, you know, if you don't if you don't have your playbook ready, in a panic, you'll make mistakes. Yep. Ah, so, so speak, thank you, Troy. Yes, thank you very much. A wonderful source and do uh, doing good research and and writing. Uh, so on to the next bit of our rock and roundup. You probably heard about this. LastPass has yep. had a browser extension security flaw. Looks like they are releasing the fixes though. Yeah, but. Right after it was announced, there's another problem found right away. 
and I didn't know this, but these are this is with the browser extension. So somehow your passwords are in your browser plugin or extension or whatever, and I just think that's a bad idea. I, I wouldn't put my brow, my password anywhere near where the browser can get at. Right, like they probably it. download a yep. download the password vault. I like having it. I want it over here in a separate app. I want my password manager to be completely separate from my browser. Yeah, I have few enough accounts that I, I kind of feel the same way. I'm not the convenience factor is not a huge deal for me. Uh, I, I prefer to know that, like, yes, I have to take the password from here and put it over there and never the, the two shall meet otherwise. Yeah. And I have to type in my master password, I'm going to guess, 50 times a day. Yeah. And I have to type my sudo password maybe 20 to 40 times a day. Yeah, totally. If not that. So, yeah, I... Don't don't keep it in the browsers. Browsers are are well known for not doing. It's a big, thing. complicated environment that's so, hard to sandbox and hard to you know, especially things like there. extensions where it really straddles that line of like you're not a web page, but you're not the browser runtime itself. What's happening? It, it, the only thing I can think of is it must be for for convenience, so yes. that it automatically fills in the passwords exactly. for you. No, no, don't do that. Or, or you need we need to do it in a better way where there's a you know like an open and documented protocol that that we can audit the security of the connection that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't think that's going to work either. Yeah, probably won't. Uh, okay, so speaking of not working, yes, uh, this I was kind of glad to see because well, you're just getting the segues so good today. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. Practice makes perfect. So Google. Take semantic to the woodshed, as R says, for misissuing 30,000 HTTPS certificates. Yep. And I like that it does have a picture of a woodshed. This, yeah, I like that, this, too. This, this is nice. So, yeah, basically, semantic has done a bunch of bad stuff um, with issuing of certificates. And they're not doing the right things. And they're not making sure that the certificates they're issuing are for the right people. So... Google stopping recognizing them and will eventually nullify all those certs that were poorly issued. Actually, I haven't complete. I haven't read this whole thing. I scanned it briefly, but basically, uh, Google says thirty thousand certificates. Semantics says no. It can't be that many. No, it's hundred and twenty-seven. No, it's not thirty thousand. It's hundred and twenty-seven. Uh, I'm more tempted to believe Google here. Yeah, I don't think Semantic has shown that we should really be trusting them in this this regard, especially when they've prior shown really, I think, what amounts to negligence. So, good on Google. It's nice to see them having the pressure and using it. When you make a mistake, admit it, fix it, and move on. Then it goes away. Just don't mess up. Maybe they can go read that Troy Hunt article and learn a few things. That, That might help them out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So, what's next? Uh, what's next on the roundup? We're going to finish with two happy stories. Yay! Ah, thank you. That's I like that. Maybe we should make this a theme. This this next story is from Slashdot, but it's about a British teenager who contacted scientists at NASA to point out an error in a set of their own data. Basically, what happened is there are these detectors on the International Space Station. And when nothing was hitting them, it was returning a negative number. 
but you can't have negative energy. So he told them what was wrong, and someone fixed it. But they thought they originally thought it was only happening once or twice a year, but he, he found that it was happening multiple times a day. So there's a link here to a video. The video is really cool. Listen to it. But good on this 17-year-old for finding it. NASA invited it, invited him in to help. This has got to be so great That's for his That's awesome. Career. You're right. This is a very happy story, and... Yeah, it's, and it's, it's nice to see it's that good. kind of involvement, right? Where like the public can can look at this stuff and give mm-hmm. feedback and give improvements, especially in times of government, you know, constrained government spending on science and other things. This is great. Yep. Okay, so I what's agree. the final item this week? The final item is that time I trolled the entire internet. Oh, I like the sounds of this. So this is someone who jokingly created a website called NetAuthority.org. And started sending fake emails out to people alleging that it has recently brought to our attention that you have been or are in violation of the Net Authority Acceptable Internet Usage Guidelines. It has been reported that you distributed, read offensive materials over the internet and they gave them a list of things to do. So blah, 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 blah. And then it just it just took off one day. He couldn't get into the website and he got cell phone. His cell phone was ringing from numbers he didn't recognize and it seemed... It basically took off, and it's pretty funny. This is back around 2000, 2001. One of these uh, classic kind of internet, uh, not not war story, but something along those lines of, it was a different time back then. Yes. So I want to read the entire post, but I didn't have time today. But it does sound sound very funny. Excellent. Well, thank you for including it in the roundup. I think that's great. Anything else you'd like to add to today's show? Mm, Nope. But if you have questions, write in. Yes, please do. We love it. It makes us smile. And obviously, we need more of that. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's program, this week's episode of TechSnap. This has been episode 312, I do believe. 311? 311. What am I saying? I should know that by now. If you'd like to go watch the past episodes, 310, 309, they're all great. Or you'd like to see not this episode, but if you want to see the last, the last incarnation of this show, any of the other fine Jupiter Broadcasting programs, jupiterbroadcasting.com, that's where you want to go. Plus, they've got this magical calendar widget. It will tell you when we're here live. That means you can meet us here live. You get to be a part of the show, join our wonderful IRC room, give feedback, be a part it's a lot of fun. If you'd like to hear more from us, I'm at West Payne on Twitter. Dan is at TechSnap underscore Dan. And that concludes this program. Stay here. We'll have the latest reruns on, and we'll see you next week. 